Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi there, I'm Sean Callahan, And hi there, I'm Mark Shank. Hey, it's great to be back on the podcast. We've been, Mark and I have been traveling around, uh, so we've been away from the recording uh, studio. Is it too much to call this a studio, Mark? Look, I, I think with a stretch of the imagination, you could get away with it. Right, exactly. Squint a little bit, you might think studio. <laughs> no, we've been away, we've been traveling, uh, but back in Melbourne now, which is fantastic. And of course, what we're doing, one of the things that we're getting ready for is our big party happening next, next month because uh, our company turns 15 years old. Anecdote is 15. Yeah, so uh, we're having a bit of a celebration. Uh, it's on the 9th, is that right? Our, our big get-together, yeah, Shindig. 9th of August, yes. So if you're in Melbourne, if you find yourself in Melbourne and you want to come along, yeah, get in contact with us. We'd love to see you. We'd love to hear more from our uh, listeners of Anecdotally Speaking. So uh, let us know. But today we're going to get straight into the story. Mark's got a story for, for us, a sort of historical one, and uh, I'm going to lay, throw it over to you, mate. Okay, cool. So I'll just share the story, then we'll talk about yep. what we like about it and why it works, or how to use it in business. Yep. So this story starts, well, in, in 1707, so a long time ago. Uh, the British fleet was returning to England, and the weather wasn't too good, and four ships struck the Scilly Islands, which is a group of islands on the southwest of the mainland or southwest of Cornwall. And so four warships were lost, but also 2,000 lives. Wow. So it was one of the biggest naval disasters still in history. Yeah. And the main reason for this accident was because the, at the time, sailors were unable to accurately calculate their position at sea. So for, for years, they've been able to calculate latitude, which is how far are you north or south of the equator, but they weren't able to accurately calculate longitude, which is kind of the east-west dimension, uh, when they were at sea. And solving the problem of latitude was, was referred to as the greatest scientific problem of the age yeah. because so much depended on sea trade, etc., and so many lives and so much commerce was affected by uh, uh, shipwrecks. It, it was so... They'd known it for, for hundreds of years that solving longitude was a problem, but this naval disaster prompted the, a, a lot of action, including the British Parliament putting in place what was called the Longitude Act. And they put in place a reward of £20,000. Now, it doesn't sound much, but in 1707, it's the equivalent of over $3 million today. Yeah. So $3 million US dollars. Yeah. It's, it's, Big a, bucks. It's, it's a huge amount of money. And they also established a thing called the Longitude Board, which was to oversee the administration of... The, uh, the funding and you know, determine who gets the prize money. Uh, so it was for someone to provide a practical solution to the longitude problem. Yeah. Now, yeah. of course, everyone heard it. Well, lots of people heard about this and there were all sorts of ideas put forward to the longitude board that were kind of swamped with ideas. One of the ideas was from a clockmaker, a guy called John Harrison, who believed that being able to keep time accurately was the solution and he believed he could design and build a clock that kept accurate time that would allow longitude to be calculated. Now, Isaac Newton was on the uh, the, the, the longitude board, and, yep. and he, he'd, in, his, in setting up the longitude board, Newton had pointed out that being able to keep time accurately at sea uh, was a potential solution to the longitude problem, but such a device was impossible. Right? So that was... They ruled it out pretty early. They then. ruled it out very early. But it was also because latitude was solved by, astronom by astronomy. Yes. So readings of celestial bodies, et cetera, et cetera, mathematical, mathematical calculations. And so the prevailing wisdom was that uh, longitude would also be solved 
by some sort of astronomical solution. And that's what they were looking for. In fact, the longitude board was heavily weighted to people with a uh, like an astronomical, you know, the, the Astronomer Royale, for example, was, mm. was one of the members, etc. Now, um, so Harrison didn't have much education, but he was a very good clockmaker. In fact, one of the clocks that he made has been running continuously since about 1717 in a, a village in England, um, and it's right? made entirely of wood. Um, so he was a pretty good clockmaker. And so he believed that he could make this this clock. So he went down and uh, presented to the Longitude Board, and they funded him uh, five hundred pounds to build uh, his first clock, which was called H one. And he spent five years building it. Uh, and in seventeen thirty six, H one was put to sea, and accurately kept time uh, and allowed uh, longitude to be calculated accurately uh, on on a trip to Spain and back. So so essentially, uh, he had solved the longitude problem and proven it. The captain of the ship was amazed at how accurate uh, Harrison's observations were, his calculations were, compared to the, the dead reckoning methods that were used by sailors at the time, even though this captain was a renowned navigator. Right. So there you go, longitude solved. Done. No, no. The board didn't award him the prize for solving longitude. What they gave him was a, you know, a small amount of money to make it even more accurate. Okay. So, And Harrison believed that he could make it more accurate, but it took him 17 years to produce his second H2. 17 years. Yep. Um, but it was like revolutionary and even much more, much more, much more accurate. But the board never actually put that one to sea to test it. And so Harrison, in the meantime, had come up with an even, you know, with an even better design, and he started development of H three. And anyway, he developed successive, more successively more accurate clocks over a period of forty years. Right now, during the nineteen fifties, something happened that really was a derailer for Harrison and the and the chronological solution, because one one of the astronomers astronomers had uh, come up with the idea of calculating longitude using something he called the lunar distance model. So looking at the moon and doing calculations based off the moon. Now, we now know that that was never going to work, but it really was popular. It appealed to the board. Yeah. And so the board kind of sidelined Harrison and and put all their focus into this lunar distance method. Fast forward, 1773, Harrison is in his 80s. He is basically a pauper, and his son petitions the king, who goes and has a look at this and realizes that Harrison had in fact solved the longitude problem years before and ordered the longitude board to pay him the full reward, the full fine, you know, the full so he prize. Finally money. got it. So he finally got recognition that he had solved the problem of longitude many years before, and of course now it is that's what you do, right? That's how you calculate longitude. Uh, Harrison figured out and solved the problem. The establishment didn't recognise it, so anyway, that's the story. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I, I kind of love that story. I love the book. Uh, yeah, Longitude. yeah, yeah. So you know, we that book came out. What do you reckon? It was it was in the eighties, was it, or maybe maybe the nineties? Oh. But Darva Sobel, you know, wrote that. It was her first, you know, sort of cracking. Um, Sort of non-fiction, wasn't it? And it was just—I loved it. It's, it's a little tiny little book, isn't it? Yeah, tiny yeah. little book. Very, very easy to read. So, uh, yeah, Darva Sobel. If you haven't read it, uh, read the book Longitude. Yeah. Uh, how a lone genius solved the greatest scientific problem of his time. Yeah, it's a great book. So, what do we like about that story? Um, I mean, the thing that stands out for me is that you know you have a real problem, right? 
and that's which were lives are at risk and are not even lives are at risk lives are lost uh, in this in not being able to solve this problem and and also I think there's a, this element of a clear good and bad guy if you like you've got Harrison there he's a he's just this you know carpenter who makes clocks um, and then you've got who you know is like a, you know sort of low what would you say is low socioeconomic, low status guy, mm-hmm. you know, and in the hierarchy of the UK, I'm sure his class is much lower than the guys who are on the longitude board. Yes, yeah, kind of working class versus the elite. Yes, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. So you've got that dynamic set up for it. So I really like that as, as part of the story. Always good to have a good guy and a bad guy. Oh, certainly. It makes a big difference. And, and so many stories throughout history are about somebody, you know, a good guy eventually overcoming a bad guy or a good character overcoming a bad character. We shouldn't yes. get caught up in the whole good guy, bad guy thing. <laughs> um, one of the things I like about it is it's it's a, a lesson from history. Yes. Um, and that that same lesson has been repeated over and over and over. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, you know, there's some nice elements in there too, just about the, I don't know, the, the persistence that this guy has had to, you know, to build you know, all these different versions of the clock, even though he'd won... Essentially, done enough work to win the prize after his first clock. Bit of a perfe- bit of a perfectionist, yeah. uh, was Mr. Harrison. So, in some ways, he's probably his own worst enemy in the sense of, "Hey, I've got another good version for you." You know, no, no, don't worry about that one. Look at this one. <laughs> this is even better, right? Yep. So uh, maybe that's that's part of it as well. Yeah, I, I I love the fact that you can go and see these clocks at the Greenwich Observatory in London. Yes, yeah, that they are spectacular too, and. I was I was surprised when I saw them just how small, well H two three and four are. I mean they're like um, almost like fob watches, but big fob, fob watches. You know, yeah, you don't, I wouldn't want to carry them. No, you wouldn't want to carry them around <laughs> in your pocket. But they're not as big as a, you know, what you imagine a clock would be. It, it would have been, you know, quite, you could sort of tell that he took the idea of the pocket watch, you know, as a form factor, mm-hmm. and sort of said, okay, how do I make that into something that could withstand the water? You know the, the the temperatures, the humidity, and all the other things that are going to happen on a on a ship back in the day. Yeah, and uh, when I was there, uh, H four wasn't there. Yeah, and uh, but the other three were. So I've got a few photos. Uh, maybe we'll use one of those photos in. Throw it up on the. Throw it up on the. On the, on the yeah. yeah. What, so um, one of the things I liked about it was it was a, a, a novel solution. A problem we've been around for ages. Yep. And he came up with a novel sort of solution to yeah. the problem. And quite a simple solution, yeah. you know, really, except for the fact the actual creation of the watches. I mean, he had to create new techniques and new, you know, use all sorts of different things to, to make it happen. But as an idea, it was a very simple idea. The idea was exactly, the idea was simple, but the bringing it to life took many, many years. Yeah. Actually, you might say something too about it. You know the importance of execution. You can have a simple idea that it's going to get the job done, but it's actually in the the detail of the execution that uh, you probably probably will challenge yourself more than anything else. Yeah. In fact, uh, when uh, uh, when Steve Jobs was interviewed about when he came back to Apple, he talked about um, the had kind of fallen into a disease where it thought that having great ideas was enough. Yes, and right. he killed off most of the ideas because what was happening was that there was lots of idea, idea generation, but very little product creation. Yeah. And so he said, no, 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 no. We're going to pick the best ideas and we're going to turn them into products. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I guess that's the, the big thing, idea to execution. 
Okay, so there are things we, some of the things that we like, but um, how would we make this story even better? Do you think you know that's uh, your telling of it as as you know that version? Is there any uh, any other ways you would do it? Well, I think that's a very good example of how you can use a story uh, effectively, but only when you know what the point is. Right. Because I told that without trying to make a point. Uh-huh. And and we see this all the time in business where people have a really good story and they tell it, but the way to make it even better is to be absolutely clear on what point you're trying to make in that moment. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because you know if you're trying to make that point around, um, gee, it's so easy for the predominant power to just dis and disregard the crazy guy coming in from left field, right? Uh, the Harrison guy. Um, and you could, if you told that story, you know, you could just zoom straight into, um, oh, there's this guy Harrison in the 1700s, um, was solving this problem using clocks. He was doing it in a totally different way, you know, you know, and you tell it from that perspective, it would shorten the story, uh, quite considerably. Yeah. And so I guess that's one of the ways to make it even better is to pick a point that you want to make with that story. And I guess we're going to talk about that in a minute. You know, yeah. What are the points you could make with it? Yep. So yeah, the big way you can make it better. But you know, um, it's I don't think it's as straightforward as that in some ways. Because I reckon you could tell that full story as big as that, but it depends on the context. Like if you were standing up giving a presentation uh, and you know you wanted to make these bigger points, you might want to make a couple of different points. You would tell that whole story. Yep. Just like you told it. You know, with imagery, so people can actually see Harrison, they can see the clocks, uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, when you command a stage, you have so much more flexibility. But if you're sitting around a, a, a table of six business leaders and you want to make a point, there's no way you're going to tell that story. You don't. You do not have the latitude. You no, don't have the time. No, you you're lucky to get a minute to be able to give a, a thumbnail version of that story. Uh, to be able to get the idea. In out. fact, what you'd probably get the opportunity to do is go. Well, that idea sounds a bit like what Harrison was facing back in the seventies, the seventeen hundreds, when he solved the longitude problem. Yeah. And people go, "What do well, you mean? What was that? Yeah. yeah. Well, because he did that, that, and so you might get a minute. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, that's good. So, um, I th- the other thing I, I reckon would be uh, would enhance that story is to have a little bit more of a character thumbnail of Harrison you know what does he look like you know was what's he you know I think we kind of know it like he was this guy in the Midlands of uh, of England you know probably had a different accent to everyone else uh, down south for example uh, I don't know how much you would say probably only a little bit but just enough to give you that little bit of an image of the of the guy well of course yeah I, I didn't do any of that I just kind of just launched into Harris was a Harrison was a clockmaker yeah right exactly yeah so that that would be something that you know, well, might, might I, I guess I guess the, the 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 little segue about the clock that's still running uh, in England does give some insight into his character, the sort of guy he was, yeah, yeah. in that he was a very good clockmaker. That's it, exactly. Had an eye for the long and term. And he was already doing amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, how well, might we use that story in a business context? We've already well, touched on the innovation one, haven't we? You know, sort of in the sense of, you know easily knocking out ideas because they don't adhere to the the standard way of thinking so there's that element of it and it's a great one if you've got an organization where you wanted to encourage innovation and you wanted people managers in particular to listen to the ideas from their teams yep yeah 
especially for those people who you sort of see as outliers in some way. Yeah, so what you'd said about the, the crazy lone guy. Yep. You know, he could actually be the one who's who's giving you the, the, the best possible advice, whereas everyone else is just going, oh, yes, astronomy, astronomy, astronomy. That's right. Harrison's going clock. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I, I also, uh, in you could use it to demonstrate the importance of diversity of thinking. If you've just got a bunch of astronomers who are trying to solve the longitude problem, you're probably not going to get very far. Yeah. So you need different different ways of thinking, different backgrounds, completely different walks of life. Yes, that's right. You know, if you're putting together a team, it's unlikely in the first blush that you would sort of say, okay, we're dealing with this uh, longitude problem. Uh, yeah, we'll get the mathematicians, we'll get the astronomers in, and um, oh. should we get a carpenter in? <laughs> Let's get a clockmaker. Yeah, a clockmaker yeah. in. So, you know, but that's the sort of thinking you probably have to have. Yeah, yeah and, and, it is, and it rings true for today, right? Yeah, and there are so many great examples of how diverse teams are much more effective at coming up with generating and executing solutions than, than non-diverse teams, and kind of that story uh, yeah, illustrates, illustrates that. that. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, I think there's something around persistence. Right here, you've got a guy who is a tinkerer, really. I mean, he loves to get the new version out. He's not going to stop. He's not going to sort of say, yeah, I've nailed it because he's got a better idea and he wants to improve it. I did hear a, a lovely, I know we've already talked about Steve Jobs, but I heard a, a nice little anecdote about him where they that actually um, the designers had just finished like their, almost like the ultimate version of the, of the iPod. You know, with the click wheel the click, yeah. and, you know, all that lovely Johnny Ive sort of uh, design and uh, aesthetic. And I still have one of those, by the way. Have you? Yeah. Uh, like if you have it in the original packing, I think that would be uh, ideal. But the they took it to Steve Jobs, you know, very proud of what they are. Here it is, Steve, look what we got. And he looks at it and he's pretty impressed, but he sort of says, can you make it smaller? And they went... Oh no, no! Like we've we've used this these components, we've you know crapped it down to the the smallest amount. Steve Jobs grabs the iPod, walks over to the fish tank in the office, drops it in, and bubbles <laughs> appear from the device, and he just says, "We can make it smaller." <laughs> and I was just thinking those those designers must have been shaking their heads, but at the same time they the. The feedback that uh, you hear is that even though he was pushing you and pushing them, and that at the time it was it grated with them, they look back at that time in the in the history of their work as you know some of the best work they've ever done. So you know here this is a guy who's obviously has that built in, right? He's pushing himself. He has that ability. So it's a it's a great example of that. It is a great example. And and as he as he learned more and developed more, some of the things that he invented to solve or to create the clock that solved the longitude problem, particularly as, you know, it gets through H2, H3, H4, they're still in use today. Yeah. Right. And just think, like, he's getting more and more experienced. Just think if he'd lived another 20 years. I mean, what, what could he have done? Could have done the digital clock. <laughs> he could have done the iPod. <laughs> um, all right, good. So, so um, the importance of iteration. Yeah. So it's another business yeah. potential use. The importance of iteration. Yeah, and experimentation. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, uh, I think it's time to us to give it a bit of a, a rating. It's my turn, isn't it? To yep. Give it a rating in terms of uh, you know usefulness and you know I actually heard this story told 
in a business setting for the first time when I worked in the Kinevin Centre in IBM. And Dave Snowden uh, used to tell this story, usually, usually around this idea of, uh, you know, where ideas come from. He was taking that perspective and be careful. You don't have that group that's squashing the ideas. And I could see, told in that setting, people were on the edge of their seat, just hanging off every word, you know, of the story. So I know it's a good one. So I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I think this is a solid story that can be used in all sorts of different ways. You can tell the long version like you did, and you could tell a, a short version as well. What about you? Do you think you could have this one in your back pocket? I do. I have it in my back pocket. I love it. And uh, I particularly love the kind of against the odds uh, aspect of it. And, yeah, I'm going to go with 8 as well. Wow. Too high high scores for us. We don't get many nines, do we? Or tens. Uh, we're we're hard, a bit tough on ourselves. Hard taskmasters. Well, guys, uh, it's been great uh, sharing a, another business story with you. I think uh, we'll wrap things up unless there's anything else you wanted I, I, to... Just a reminder about our birthday party. We're, we're really excited. We've got... Uh, it's going to be a big party. So uh, please, if you're in town, let us know and uh, welcome to come along. That'll be terrific. Well, thanks for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. And yeah, tune in next time for when we share another episode of how you put these stories to work. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.